Hello and welcome to the Xenothesis podcast. My name is Rick Jackton, and in this episode, episode 34, we're covering chapters 7 and 8 from Part 2 Phoenix of Book 2 Adulthood Rites of the Xenogenesis Trilogy by Octavia Butler. Uh, we've got uh, two short chapters uh, this episode. We're recording this back-to-back with uh, the previous one because we have some uh, some time off, uh, so we're accumulating a couple in advance. So, uh, how's it going, Michael? What's the, Good, thank uh, you. Hi, everyone. prediction for this? Uh, yes, um, as I said in the previous episode, that I feel like the men are going to continue on their journey and find more villages that like are either emptied or maybe Don Kali just came in and like they're like, oh shit, Don Kali, so let's run away, something those lines like this, because of the process of mm-hmm. Don Kali reinviting people back to to their collective. Mm-hmm. So okay, uh, well, it doesn't quite pan out. Uh, we get a little bit of uh, experience with another village, but it's not uh, not yet been emptied out by people joining the Owen Kali. That's correct. That's correct. But yeah, maybe let's get to it. Yes, yeah, so, uh, start with the summary. So, the men. The chapter starts with the men reaching a village called Siwatu, full of people who looked like Lilith. The languages they could speak were mostly English and Swahili, but there was a scatter of mm-hmm. other languages. We're told. The people from the village examined Akin and wished to buy him, but they could not send one of the village women away with the foreign men. Duh! Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, honestly, unless it's, like, somebody, like, this, like, uh, I'm not, like, current version of a human being that, like, everybody hates, then I would probably, they would probably maybe think about sending them, but in the times where survival is the most important, I don't think any, but anything like this would happen ever. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, and unless you have someone who actually like wants to leave or something, they're not going to get uh, uh, yeah. too many willing volunteers to honestly, go off with four men. I honestly don't know what those men are thinking about. Like, it's going to have a sex slave or something. It's just, hmm. it's just weird. The women took Akin and bathed him. Some believed that uh, that the breast could produce milk if they kept Akin close to them. Um, the men of the village were also fascinated by the boy to the point that Akin's captors became frightened. Um, so they decided to steal Akin out of the village during one of the moonless nights. Um, mm. Akin didn't want to go. He liked being with the women who knew how to lift him without hurting him, who have fed him some nice and interesting food. He liked their voices mm. and their smell and the fact they were not threatening to him. Well, I mean, you know, mm. who wouldn't want to? Who wouldn't want to go stay with them? Yeah, like, come on, you know, the basics. <laughs> yeah, the basics. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Hmm. but yeah, it's, it's interesting that they kind of uh, they stayed as long as they did, and they kind of allowed as much contact between the villagers and and, and Akin as they did, given that they weren't going to get what they uh, they wanted from a trade perspective. I guess they had to maybe like they wanted to take a break from all that traveling. And the yeah, village yeah. welcomed them, so maybe they like. I assume what will happen is that um, they stayed there several several days, and then mm-hmm. in the process, like oh, you know, recuperating and like maybe helping the village around a bit, but like you know, um, just enough to like not be like kicked out. But at the same time, mm-hmm. in like uh, not like not not in, not enough to be like to spend too much energy on this. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I suppose they they probably couldn't uh, successfully trade um, 
for a, well for a woman <laughs> given this uh, situation if they didn't have uh, if they weren't willing to sort of display a little bit of uh, uh, trust towards the village you know, and letting a king kind of mingle with them also lets them kind of you know assess the the goods they might want to be trading for right is this actually a, a very human-like child or not i just so you know like i just imagine this like um you know imagine like a group of traders come to your village and they're like i don't know like you come in and it's like oh we have things to trade here's a chair here's some food here's a woman here's a here's, there's a basket blah blah it's like it's just really do they imagine things being like this it's gonna be a, like this random woman being like oh we want to trade this woman for whatever you are you have it's just like who i mean unless there's slavery again and invading of other tribes i would say or like villages mm. like it's not gonna happen like it's just i don't know what this like honestly i still cannot well, comprehend I mean, what this man is thinking i suppose it might almost be more like um a bride price type thing right so it's, it's not not so much you know chattel slavery as such but the the whole kind of um uh, you give me enough the sort of the sort of trading that would go on uh between families when they like try to um in old times when like you bring yeah, gifts yeah. and then mm. i don't know it's sort of maybe mm. but like in the same time, at this position, like you had to sort of introduce yourself. Yes, I come from this family. I do this. I have this standing among, among society. Mm. I have money. I have land. I have blah blah blah, so that your daughter will be happy with me. You know. But in in this scenario, where there is not an established culture of that kind of thing, where there is not a a, a history of people and a, a long future uh for you know a, a generational component for for different lineages to to you know, place value on that kind of thing it's a it's going to be a bit more ad hoc right <laughs> I, I just love that you use the word ad hoc talking about like you know about this like there's this there's nothing like i wouldn't even I, I wouldn't even go like use words like this about talking about this topic doesn't even deserve it like it's it's just nonsense end of story this is like those times have passed come on like honestly but you know. yeah yeah i mean i i you know i tend to kind of take a very uh detached approach to this kind of thing i look at it analytically no i understand and, but it's so. just like it's still in my mind like you can look in the touch way but like those men are detached from reality. <laughs> I mean, but like yes and no, though, because I, I think that uh, I think this is actually probably the kind of thing that would take place in the absence of the the kind of I mean, it it, it reverts to those kind of earlier societal norms that that pervaded when uh, resources were as scarce as they were, uh, and you know, that that kind of attitude. Um, and that kind of kind of trading for for the value that that an individual human's labor and presence can provide. I mean that 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 was like it was a relatively normal thing to do to effectively trade people. I mean even when you think about it, like you know frontier villages and you know like uh, having uh, like adopting orphans even for, for for acting as farm labor all that kind of stuff, right? No, it, no, no. I understand, a, understand. It's just like, yeah. but at the same time, like I just imagine like if Octavia Butler went different directions, like villages made of purely women, like Amazonians again, and like you know the men come in to trade for a woman, and the, what they get is like either choice of like this old man who's just like really like just basically on a death door or like just you know some i just i just imagine like if you twist the like the 
turn the tables around, it'd still be messed up thing to think about. But like, the men would be surprised if like suddenly they reach a village and there's like, yeah, we don't trade women here, we trade men. <laughs> and you've reached a village that you shouldn't have like um, reached, and it's just mm. like, oh, oof. So not only they can't sell the construct, they're now becoming slaves themselves. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, that's beyond the point. I just, I just feel like that the fact that things are like reverting so quickly back to those times is just. You would think mm. that in a society that we that reached a certain point, things wouldn't revert so quickly to those. Um, steps, but then again, ah, well, yeah. So when when there's scarcity, pragmatism becomes the order of the day, and that's what people will will get back to pretty quickly. I think. I if, guess. So. Uh, yeah. Um, but anyway, back to the chapter. Um, so, like, even though Akin wanted to stay, Iriata carried the boy away, and Akin knew that he believed that if he cried out the man would get killed, and probably a number of people would. And thinking about it deeper, Hakin realized that probably all of his captors and several village men would die, and possibly him him himself would probably be one of the uh, dead bodies on the ground. Um, because probably Gald or someone like this would have um, mm-hmm. tried to do something uh, while they're trying to escape. So, mm-hmm. But anyway, so Hakin allowed uh, them to carry him out uh, to the raiders' canoe, canoes. They had two now, um, one extra from the Hillman village. Akin was put one in the trade goods and was sitting between Iriat and Kalik. Um, he was glad that he didn't have to worry about gold at Damek. Although Damek was trying to be friendly with him, Akin never forgot that it was him who clapped Tino down. And that's where the mm. chapter ends. Yeah, very short. Uh, very short chapter. But I wanted to raise a conversation, um, a, a topic to talk about, is that mm-hmm. we know from book one, there was a, areas of um, in, the so- in south of the planet mm-hmm. that um, humans survived, right? The, the nuclear holocaust. And we can assume mm-hmm. that the most nuclear warheads were aimed at highly dense, population-dense areas, like so big cities, mm-hmm. Some co- like you know conglomerations of cities, towns that there is a lot of people, right? Generally speaking, yes. Although actually, one of the other things that uh, was occurring during the major nuclear weapons build-up mm-hmm. um, during the Cold War was that increasingly um, they were targeting any military installations that, even if they're in low-populated areas, that they were targeting like. You know, large city buster scale nuclear weapons at relatively modest military installations so uh, yeah so that makes sense so military installations Mm -hmm. highly dense uh, populated areas makes sense Mm -hmm. but like Mm -hmm. um so but most of the book says that that some people in the south survived not only the nuclear war but also the nuclear holocaust and the nuclear winter that was caused after this right so like the whole radiation Mm. and the nuclear winter that they could survive so to survive nuclear winter obviously we have to be sort of close to equator or um we're closer to equator so the temperature drops are not as drastic as for example they would be very north or very south of the planet so mm-hmm. we know that Lilith was at the time when this all happened. She was mm-hmm. uh, in Peru. Um, yes, 
we know there climbing are, Machu Picchu, right? Yes, yes, exactly. We know that Iriarte was uh, from Chile and Cali spent a few years in Ar- in uh, in Argentina. So we can sort of assume that maybe they were at the, uh, in those areas at the time when the whole situation happened. Um, mm-hmm. So we're this is sort of so like the the middle of South America. Then we know yeah. about the village we just talked about, the Siwato village, that there are people speaking Swahili language. Right, so mm-hmm. this means that like east coast of uh, um, of Africa, so Kenya, Tanzania, Somalia, right? Mm-hmm. So we can sort of imagine that, that there's a strip going like uh, from South America over Peru, the same level, right? And then going to a f- yeah, through Amer- from Africa and then Asia, right? We know there's some Japanese people um, that, that mm-hmm. were in the ship that survived. Uh, so I assume maybe that it's like the strip that we're talking about is like in Asia wise is like south of China, Indonesia, maybe north of Australia that people mm-hmm. survived. Like obviously we're talking about like the when there's massive cities and stuff like, but if there's places that yeah. could, people could survive, it's sort of this strip of la- like of the planet that mm. sort of... Um, I suppose it would be um, low population density, but also... Um, sort of the relative strategic importance of, of the population centers as well, right? Mm-hmm. So presumably it would not necessarily have made sense for you know the two nuclear powers to necessarily uh, nuke the cities of non-nuclear powers uh, who weren't uh, sort of likely to pose a, a serious uh, threat subsequently yeah. in, in the conflict, right? They'd focus their resources on the the nuclear equipped allies of uh, and you know conventionally militarily important allies of, of the, the opposing forces so there could well be a few significant population centers that that wouldn't have been targets so i was just thinking then like one two two questions actually where could all this situation like all this story taking place on on the earth and two what were the, where it was the collection because we know about the southerners southerners people being in the south right so maybe we're talking about like um the the, the whole events of where this whole book is taking place somewhere near the equator and mm-hmm. two probably america because like south america because we're talking tropical mm. forests so potentially that would be the area that this all taking place um, although it doesn't have to, but I assume because in Africa we have massive desert and probably it wouldn't the uh, nuclear holocaust wouldn't help that. Um, yeah, I suppose in theory it could be like Borneo or something, but yeah, it it seems quite South American and you know, like the Agoutis from the last chapter yeah. those were originally native to South America. So I would assume uh, mm. we can assume it's there, but at the same time, like I wonder, mm. like. Just before Don Cali came to the planet, I wonder where the human, like the clusters of humans that survived, would accumulate, right? So mm. I guess like probably the same sort of, maybe like you know, I- I'm sure there'll be some like in Europe and North America and North Asia, like there'll be some collections of people. Like I'm sure, like I mean, Russia is so bloody massive that like you can have mm. humans scattered all around the co- uh, the the country, and I'm sure some of them will survive. So I'm sure there's mm-hmm. some post-apocalyptic people living there, but like, yeah, I just wonder, like, you know, where this, where this sort of southern patch that of people so that survive would be exactly located, or you know, what groups would survive. And I just thought that, like, we've mm. been told so much information, so I assume that that would make sense that that strip of of that latitudes that 
you know, mm. would uh, match the survivability. Yeah, yeah, and that does kind of make sense. That that I mean, this area where they're they're based is probably the was probably the least damaged, um, and thus would have been able to recover soonest, uh, which. Uh, yeah, adds up. Um, but uh, and, uh, yeah, presumably also the the largest proportion of people would have come from from that area, uh, and then you'd have picked up a few stragglers from the more remote parts that might then have been suffering from climate stuff. Yeah, I feel, but I also feel like I wonder how does the areas that are that were most nuked look like now? Mm. Like, I mean, obviously there's some things like we've discussed this that like some warheads, like coupled warheads, that would make the area inaccessible hmm. for a long time. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point because I mean, a lot of the more modern nuclear ordnance is is higher yield and cleaner um, than um, like the, the, the first two bombs, for example, they dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm-hmm. That would have been uh, much dirtier as, an, as a nuclear explosion, much more radiation. In the long term, then you're, I think, then you're likely to get from like a, a modern hydrogen bomb warhead because you know it's, it, you're converting more of the nuclear material immediately into energy mm-hmm. into a more explosive yield. So there's less of it like hanging around in, in the long term uh, as a sort of slow burning nuclear material. Uh, and perhaps the inhabitability is uh, not terrible in in some regions. Not great, but, not uh, terrible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, although of course, yeah, there's still like a lot more explosive power. Um, so you know, the, the total volume of material is higher. So I don't know whether or not the the improved yield will compensate for the increased volume. <laughs> no, yeah. honestly, it's just it just makes you make me think like oh, they're probably in like in South America. It's all t- taking place, and also mm. the fact that you know who or like. I wonder how destroyed north of the like North America is and you know areas because I mean hmm. yeah it would, it would certainly be interesting to know what the um what the climactic situation is near the little poles and uh, yeah sort of like how, how much how much ice have we got and yeah and, like yeah. The, you know yeah. the increase of ocean levels and like um it's just in general there'll be a lot of questions that would be interesting to see what what happened but if we had a if we had a nuclear winter-style situation, we'd probably see a, a drop in sea levels because right? so, you know, if the temperature cools, you get more more sea ice. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, and, uh, <laughs> nice radioactive ice, I would say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a nice, uh, nice signature in there for for someone to detect in the future and go, hmm, something went, uh, you, something went wrong here. <laughs> you go traveling and you see like the ice is glowing at night in night, like nice. Mm. Green glow. Nice little bit of uh, you know Shurenkov radiation, nice yeah. and blue. Nice and blue. <laughs> Reassuringly blue glowing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I mean you, that kind of thing would probably leave a pretty distinct. I mean, I don't know if it would leave the kind of uh, the visual layer that you get from. How was the? Um, there's that like red band in the geological record there's a particular layer it's like really rich in iridium or something where there was a major asteroid impact that you can you can make out in in a lot of the um a lot of places if you go and look at the kind of sedimentary rocks and stuff mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you get a kind of similar thing from uh, from a major nuclear event i imagine although i don't know if it would be Possibly. visible it would be, uh, especially in detectable so mm-hmm. but those things usually we detect like you know, in several hundred thousand years, right? So, like, you know, if, if we moved, jumped, in, you know, 
several millennia forward and look into the sediment and the rock formation that may be like, oh, yes, this was the point where we all blew out each other up. Nice. Well, actually, I think the um, I think we can already see some uh, in things like carbon dating and stuff. We notice changes in the isotope composition of certain things um, post nuclear tests. Oh, really? We can already spot spot them in some of those records. Okay. Yeah. Okay. They have a particular signature. <laughs> oh, just interesting. Uh, so if you were uh, like if you ever had a uh, a thing from a parallel timeline where there hadn't been nuclear tests, you could do some some carbon fourteen stuff and, and figure out whether or not it was actually from a parallel universe. Yeah, I was going to say that like I recently um, uh, found out that like the only way to f- know, for example, honey from adulted honey mm. is the carbon fourteen presence. Like the adulted, because ah. co- uh, you can physically cannot the difference because the same sugars like fructose right mm-hmm. um so and glucose so you can't really tell the difference between them unless you do the carbon dating and you know the adulted um uh honey will have a different composition of um will have no uh, carbon 14 and the more interestingly is that you can actually pinpoint where the honey comes from based on the iron uh metal ions uh, accumulating ah. it like for example selenium and some other like metal ions that are present for example because they're very distinctive from areas from like europe america and stuff like that so ah, okay hmm. just interesting. an interesting fact for us that you know like if yeah. you want to know adult honey and say oh it's not it's uh, yeah unless you know like the person who produces honey you can trust them it's most like you will not be able to tell the reality ah. but uh Reveals the level of forensic insight you can have for that kind of thing if uh, if you really pay close attention. Yeah, <laughs> honestly. Um, but yeah, just I was just curious about like the whole you know survivability after war, like where would people survive? And I thought, you know, that probably that strip of land is or that mm-hmm. of Earth between those two different latitudes would probably be the like the sort of the optimal point to be. Yeah, Unless yeah. you were in the city, then it, you probably were dead. Yeah. Yeah, in a major population center, you're, you're probably not making it. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's interesting now that we have all of those different um, sort of clusters of survivors around the world pulled together now, mm-hmm. uh, and we have all these different languages uh, in a mixed in and uh, in, in, in different uh, little village populations. Yeah, of course, it makes sense that you'd have um, a certain amount of um, assortativity based on on language, right? So you'd have the the different villages speaking the languages where the you know whomever was the dominant uh, group uh, basically yeah 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 it's interesting because like i mean they obviously english like you know most like the colonies and past colonies in, in africa and, and obviously english being international language so it makes sense that you know speaking english and uh, swahili but then we have the spanish and german and we know that like there was um village said that there was a village that was mostly Asian people, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was, yeah. Yeah, so I think Chinese people, right? Mostly Chinese. Uh, may well have been. Um, I think yeah. that's what the Bindis in the book. So, you know, it's all like, it's probably, they're not that far from each other, well, from our perspective, because most of the cases we can like travel quite easily. But for their perspective, mm. they're far enough for those little communities to form and, you know, have the sort of independent approach or the living style type of uh, style yeah yeah they're all kind of in their own little uh, little villages with their own little kind of uh, remnants of the culture of, of wherever they came from that has the, a shared language tradition yeah so, yeah 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 
But anyway, maybe I will go with my chapter 8 prediction. Yes, yeah, let's, uh, let's move on to the next chapter. So I really don't know when they're going to reach Phoenix. So I was like, <laughs> uh, they're going to reach, reach another village, but this one is empty. Or maybe there's Onkali there and they're like, shit, so let's run away or something along this line. <laughs> but like, I mean, your prediction that they were going to go through like a, sm- a series of villages held up from, from last time. Yeah. Was, yeah the, the fact that they're abandoned, not so much, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, it'd be interesting, like, to go in one village and it's like, it's empty. And another was like, what's going on? Like, and they finally mm. reach Phoenix and there's still people then. They're like, so far, there's so many villages and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. We, some of us are here from, you know, from, from, from those villages. But we know Donkai have been here mm. already or something along those lines. So. But mm-hmm. who knows? But yeah, the chapter eight starts with the name of the new village, Vladlingrad, Russians. Yep. <laughs> yeah, name kind of gives that one away. And Onkali being there, <laughs> so it already answers my question on mm. the on the on the prediction. Um, mm. Galt saw them through the rain as they were approaching branching of the river that was leading to the village. I didn't see Akin didn't see them at first because the Onkali were slipping from the grey water into the shadows of the trees. So the men ignored their tiredness and chose to left the left work, uh, fork of the river, leaving the right one leading to the Valengrad alone. Um, mm. You know, they were rowing as hard as long as they possibly could get, uh, to get as way as far as possible from Moncali until they got exhausted. Yes, actually, yeah, I'm kind of a bit off there. In, in this case, we are seeing the, the, the Oankali in, in, in the village. Uh, I don't know if it was, uh, like, to what degree that was a... Uh, part of their new effort or if they'd been there for longer and you know, the men hadn't been to this place before very much but uh, yeah so now, now we are seeing again more Owen Kali with the humans yeah but the thing is the yeah. fact that Onkali can breathe underwater is like and then travel right it makes probably the most sense because most villages will be alongside the river they need access to it. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it's the mm, travel yeah. and like but I feel like I wonder how many times did those humans swam on top of the Onkali without them realizing <laughs> Mm, yeah, they're probably just hanging around in the bottom of the river a bunch. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, yeah, it would actually be a very convenient thing to be able to be uh, able to swim effectively in a river in the Amazon. No, honestly, uh, like... You don't have to worry about all the parasites and stuff. <laughs> yeah, like, can you think of, like, oh, you know, I can breathe underwater. You don't have to worry mm. about the parasites. Like, what's the, what do you want to do? I'm just gonna jump into the river and just let myself float into the river. Like, just like take me wherever you want. Like, it's not, it's not gonna be like even there's underwater like currents or whirlpools that mm. could potentially be dangerous for normal humans. You're like, ah, mm. doesn't matter. I can breathe underwater. Who ca- who cares? No, yeah. it'd be a very convenient way to travel around. Mm. No. Just the come to think of it, if it ever comes to a, a conflict again between the humans and the Orankali in this environment, that's a uh, a major strategic advantage. Oh, yeah. They have a lot more movement flexibility. Yeah, I was thinking, like, the moment you mm. said, it's like, yep, if you try to, in like, because in your, um, uh, historically, a river would be a natural mm. boundary for an enemy to cross mm-hmm. and mountains, yeah. right? You can't do mm-hmm. it from the river because Don Cali will literally walk into the river and come up here on the other side. So you're screwed. Mm-hmm. So the only thing is mountains, right? You, you can make a fort on a hill. But then they have a spaceship. They can just drop pod you down to your uh, place. <laughs> You're literally screwed. There's no way to escape. Maybe underground, you can actually cut, you know, uh, remove, like having one exit and a gate or something. Then maybe, maybe some sort of resistance makes sense. But then still, 
you're cut away from food, yeah. you're cut away from water, unless mm-hmm. there's a water well somewhere in the side, so maybe not water. But food will run out. Mm. Yep. <laughs> Honestly. Yeah, the, the, the prospects of uh, resisting the Oankali are, are, are not good. <laughs> to be fair, all I need to say, when Trump uh, came up with the Space Force, right? <laughs> I know this is a weird topic and a weird uh, connection, okay. right? But let me explain. I'm, I'm wondering where you came from with this one, but yeah, okay, okay. But listen to me, like, um, when Trump came up with the whole Space Force, right? Like, you know, to create mm-hmm. a force of army uh, designation to, 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 you know, to travel in space and blah, 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 right? Mm-hmm. Um, to conquer other planets. And we know that at the point, like, it's quite difficult. We cannot imagine aliens actually approaching us, right? Because it would take, it's way too long for a single generation to, unless they have some science fiction type of traveling possible available. It's probably not possible. Yeah. But let's say they do visit, like, but considering the fact that, like, let's say you do want to try something, like, to protect yourself against the potential invasion from the outer space. Mm-hmm. There's none. Like, if an alien of the type of Onkali type arrived, there's no chance of really protecting yourself. Because one, as I mentioned, if you try to have, like, any sort of um, uh, fortifications or anything against them, like, when they land, like, when they do landing on the on the ground, on the land, like, if they can mm-hmm. walk in the water, it's not a pro- protection anymore. If they can, like, literally drop out from the top of the mountain, it's not going to work. Like, what are you gonna do at this point? Like, it, honestly, it's just yeah. So without equivalent, um, without an equivalent spacecraft, right? Without an, a, another kind of like mothership type entity to yeah. to fend off their decisive space advantage, then you're screwed, yeah. right? Yeah. So it's a, it's now, a very serious strategic advantage. Now connecting it to the yeah. Trump, spa- uh, uh, you know, space forces. Instead of wasting hmm. time on that, if you actually had you know, wanted to do something about space, he should start, like, having some somebody smarter than him. I mean, that's... Sorry. Let me <laughs> narrow down the spectrum. Somebody who has some idea on planning of, like, against, like, pla- things like this should be hired by him and come up with plans of what to do and, you know, in case... Because that otherwise makes no sense, right? To have any space force in general. Well, I mean... <laughs> Yeah. It makes no sense to have it for a variety of other reasons, including like the international treaty that is supposed to guarantee like non-militarization in space that has kind of, you know, kept us from from doing these things. Like, it's it's been um, America's kind of almost gone down like the space militarization route in the past in the kind of Cold War era when they were considering doing. Um, I mean, there was this whole project from from DARPA with the. Um, Project Orion mm-hmm. with the nuclear-powered spacecraft, the big, uh, um, uh, the big like pot pot things. Where, is, so is it the they're, one they're that fairly... you told me that's basically propelled by nuclear explosions? Yeah, it's a fairly crazy. So, so the, the what you have is a spacecraft. You know, it's an ordinary cylindrical-looking thing, but in, instead of using a conventional rocket firing out the back, what you have is like a massive kind of donut. Well, it's like a flat disc with a hole in the middle shaped plate attached to the back of the spacecraft by a bunch of like shock absorbers, right? And then you have a, uh, a sort of small like cannon thing that shoots a nuclear bomb uh, through the hole in the pusher plate and detonates it behind the craft. And then the shock wave um, pushes the <laughs> spacecraft forward, right? 
and so and you use kind of um you can't really do a shaped nuclear charge as such but you can sort of shape the the way the momentum you get from it uh, is is directed by putting a, a a large mass that it can vaporize so you'd put like a tungsten slug in front of this like small nuke kind of like the one kiloton sort of range um and then that gets vaporized and pushes against the pusher plate right and with this you could in theory put um multiple thousand ton payloads into orbit right so you could take like an eight thousand ton spacecraft to orbit with this thing um you'd fire off about 800 nukes to do it um <laughs> which would probably lead to a substantial increase in like the global thyroid cancer uh, amount just from the fallout um so the yeah actually launching one of these things it w- would be a bad idea um not, I mean, it's a reasonable means of propulsion in. I just once you're in space, but while you're still in the atmosphere, don't. Just like, but no, I know what you say this. that now. I feel like a mothership. Mm. If we created a mothership on Earth, that would be probably the only mm. viable way to actually project it upwards uh, from the planet. Like if we made like a massive mm. ship that we can fit, like let's say, whole humanity in, uh, which would be crazy. But if we could, that would be probably the only thing yeah, that I mean, would probably it, lift it off. I so think getting out of the gravity well, you'd you'd want something with the kind of yield of nuclear weapons. Yes, yeah. uh, that's why you tend to do it in stages, right? You send people up out of the well a little bit at a time, and you build a big ship in orbit, right? It's rather than building it down here and pushing it. But up if we did build it on like, the it's planet, it's a ridiculous that... amount of energy to go up the gravity well. well it's just so funny. Like, yeah, let's just. <laughs> detonate several thousands of nukes just to get this behemoth out of the planet yeah i mean the the the, the test vehicle they planned for this was actually they had a like a small mock-up that would have fit inside a, a saturn 5 and they would have sent it up um and done the the nuclear propulsion tests uh you know on, on orbit rather than in atmosphere oh god um but yeah, they never got much beyond like a few initial sort of sketches for the for the. For the I mean, and, and one of the other things that so the reason I brought it up was for the, the whole like st- decisive strategic military advantage. So there was a there was like a military version of the Project Orion um, nuclear spacecraft kind of sketched out mm-hmm. where they'd have like you know um, massive cannons on it that could like fire nuclear weapons from orbit and you know kinetic weapons and and this whole. So it would have been like a, a, a sort of. Um, like you can imagine this providing very effective like first nuclear strike capability from orbit mm-hmm. um plus the possibility of intercepting um nuclear weapons um if they were fired to some degree uh so the uh, it would have it would have represented like a a, a major um kind of shift in the whole mutually assured destruction dynamic uh, which is one of the reasons why uh, it, it got canned was because, like you know, if, if we do this, then the Soviets will think that they might have to fire first because then we'll have the means of subverting their like first strike capability. Yeah. There are a few other things like that with you know um, the whole Star Wars program where it was like um, if we actually develop the the technology necessary to intercept the the weapons, then we have the you know, we, it, it no longer is mutually assured destruction. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you know, it wrecks the game theory of that whole dynamic. But yeah, so it was a it's a similar problem. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, without something with that kind of um, uh, that kind of delta v and that kind of mass 
uh, that kind of ability to move large quantities of mass around in in, in space, you wouldn't really, yeah, you, you wouldn't stand a, a chance against a, an alien spacecraft of any substantial uh, size, right? You'd have to have something that would that match it because, like, being in orbit gives you crazy strategic advantages. Yeah, <laughs> if you have weapon systems up there. Yeah, yeah it's just mm, yeah. Anyway, mm. off tangent. <laughs> Yeah, as as usual. As usual. <laughs> Starting from like the 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 natural fortification of the land usage of not to to gain going to nuclear warships, like yeah, we do we are great at this. Going off that honestly. <laughs> yeah, well, we kind of we started on like a military tactics yeah, direction yeah, yeah, and then yeah. kind of veered. <laughs> you can see how we got. Yeah, there. you can see where we okay. got. But my like Trump space force. Was it... Yeah, that was the hard departure. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can tell how my brain works sometimes. I mean, my brain working is already in oxymoron, but hey, but anyway. <laughs> um, so back to the chapter. So the men rode ha- as hard as, as long as they could uh, to get away from Don Cali until they got uh, physically exhausted and couldn't go on anymore. Finally, they needed a break, so they moved to the land and, you know, they hid their boats and ate some smoked fish and dried fruits from Siwatu. They had from Siwatu and drank some mild wine. Again, mm. one of the men, Kalik, gave some wine to Akin, honestly, who seemed to like it but only drank a little. Mm. He didn't like the effect of alcohol had on his small body, the, the feeling of disorientation. So the first, the first time they gave him alcohol, mm. that must have been some sort of moonshine. This time they were giving him some wine. So, okay, progress. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> interesting yeah it's, uh, it's interesting actually that he kind of uh, experiences it as, as a one year old one, like normally physically physiologically right he, he gets a little bit drunk off of it but uh, uh, you know, I, I might have thought that maybe the Owen Carly would just uh, like break it down super efficiently and mm. not even have any effect potentially maybe there's like because it's a co- because Akin is a construct maybe you know there's still mm-hmm. some bit of, part he yeah might. So after being fed by Kalik, Akin decided to collect some nuts and brought them back to the man. Um, Kalik cracked them open and both of them enjoyed them. Then Akin then gave some teriyate, making sure beforehand that they were good and there was no insect-infected ones present. Um, mm. Damek also tried to collect some nuts, but almost all of them were infested with the insect larvae. This is the excerpt <laughs> from the book where just the chapter finished. This fact made him stare at Akin with suspicion and doubt. Akin watched him without facing him, watched him without uh, without eyes until he shrugged and threw the last of his nuts away in disgust. He looked at Akin once more and spat on the ground. And that's where the chapter ends. <laughs> I think yeah. I think Akin is playing a long ball here. I think, although it's not directly it's directly mm-hmm. spoken here, Akin is building mm-hmm. a favor between before Iriart and Kalig, who found out that actually care him, and Damek who uh, mm-hmm. who hurt um, Tino. And Gold, who hmm. is basically going crazy, um, hmm. like there's gonna be a fight between. He's, I think, he's sort of building up a like this this mistrust within the group between the men. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I think there's a <laughs> but yeah, the, big this, brain. This whole thing action. with him. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I think there's a big brain action from Akin there, like just the build up. Hmm. Okay. Yep. So sowing dissent among the ranks. Yes. <laughs> hmm. Uh, this whole bit with him uh, uh, like collecting the nuts and being able to tell f- from the outside like which pods didn't have they, larvae yeah, yeah. in them 
was <laughs> like, that's really quite there funny. There you go. These were good ones. And the man's like, oh, there's nuts. And they're just like worms inside. Like, what the hell? All of them. Yeah. yeah. And it's just like he's not even yeah. looking at them, but you can sense it's like, this kid knows. Mm. Hate him. I hate you. Like Anakin from Star Wars. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> the question is who's going to have the high ground this time? Akin or the man? <laughs> Uh, well, I suppose Akeen's stature makes it a bit difficult for him to yeah. have the high ground. Probably the same level, even uh, though like, this high ground is a... the same level, but still. Uh, let's say he has the moral high ground. <laughs> uh, but yeah. So maybe let's go to my chapter 9 prediction, because, mm-hmm. you know what? I wrote this, okay? The men reach another village. Maybe finally Phoenix? But I still may. Mm-hmm. I feel personally that might be still too soon. I thought maybe there's still gonna be something with Don Kali, like the mention of Ankali several times. Maybe there's something gonna be there. But I feel like either Damek or Gold are gonna try to do something stupid to the boy. Like Gold, I feel like Gold is gonna be the one who finally snaps with the craziness because and uh, will and there's a brutal fight between the men. Like there's something. Okay. So you think they'll? Yeah, there's something's gonna uh, fight amongst themselves. Yeah, something's gonna trip them, and trigger something, and they're just gonna go ham on each other. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. Come on, spill some beans. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so, so you think it, we might be getting to the point where where Phoenix is coming back in, having, having predicted it a few times. Now we've been to like three different villages that weren't Phoenix, so maybe we're finally getting around to Phoenix. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I feel like, I mean, the chapter is called Phoenix, so they have to reach the village at some point. But like, I just feel like yeah, the section there yeah. has to, I don't know, like, I feel like there has to be some sort of breaking point just before, like, I mean, usually books or stories would go like this, you know, like, just about before mm-hmm. they reach the final destination, something happens, and then they finally reach, but, you know, like, all tired or something, you know, like, exhausted because of the events just beforehand, right? Okay, yeah. And if they do get to Phoenix, how do you think um, uh, Akeem will, will uh, react? How will he, uh, um, I really don't know. It depends on the, vill- of the status of the village because we know from Tino that the, a lot of people started leaving the village, right? That like the, mm-hmm. initially they were working hard trying to like regain the status they had before, but they realized they have no kids. So maybe and tino was the at the time was the akin right tino was akin for them right so like you know they didn't want to allow him to go scouting in case something happens to him maybe if there was a young girl maybe they could try to make them fuck and then have a child or an offspring but that's not gonna happen so tino left mm-hmm. the village right because at, the, at that point like a lot of people are still living or committing suicide because there's just no po- point of going forward anymore um mm-hmm. so does either the village is completely abandoned or there's still some okay. people there, like Gabe and Tate. Obviously, those two cockroaches um, are still there. Um, mm-hmm. And although no, no, Tate maybe is not a cockroach. Um, she's more like a gullible kid. Gabe is the cockroach there. Um, okay. The parasite that's you know affected Tate. But yeah, they probably may be still there. Mm-hmm. And then like, um, or maybe Tino's parents may be still there waiting for him mm-hmm. i don't know so maybe i can in, uh, if i was a king probably i was hoping like he did in few chapters before and that he would, could maybe meet mm-hmm. tino's grandpa uh, sorry tino's parents and right, right. maybe they would take him under his uh wing but i don't know mm-hmm. 
Okay, okay. Some some uh, good speculations. Right then. Uh, I hate I you for not spelling beans. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the whole point. I know, I know. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I think that's that's probably yeah. it for these two chapters. Thank then. you very much, everyone, yeah. for listening. We're a Xenothesis. You can find all the places we upload the episodes on xenothesis.com. I was Mike Glinka. I was Richard Acton. Bye-bye. Goodbye.